welcome to episode 60 of Room of Requirement, our episode dedicated to resilience and reason in the time of Trump. I am one of your co-hosts, Kamala Rao, and with me, as always, is... Uh, Miracle Jones. And, and Alexis Wright. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so so I, I have a question for you guys. Sure. Okay. So do we want more people to listen to this podcast or not? Like, I'm I just feel, curious. I feel like Kamala is the most leaning yes <laughs> yeah. of we three. I'm fine with more people listening to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess the question is, what you think there's trade-offs, whereas I only think there's benefits. Okay. So that's that's if you explain okay. to me what the trade-offs are, like right. what's the what's the downside of most more people listening, then I'm up. As far as I know, it as if we hit a thousand listeners, right. we start to get sponsorship, and then the podcast becomes self-sustaining, and then we invest in a little bit of audio equipment as opposed to how we do it now. And to be fair, also I have a, I have a family to support, my wife. Who is still begging for that sweet, sweet Casper money? <laughs> <laughs> she really wants this to turn around and get Casper money. So, I mean, you look, man. I, I, on all seriousness, what would be the downside of of having our audience expand? Like the downside is like people are terrible. People, like, <laughs> you don't know. Like I, I mean, Alexis kind of knows, but like I get hate mail. <laughs> I get hate mail all the time, like, for other things I do. Gasping. Yeah, exposure doesn't always <laughs> translate to, like, adulation. Yes. Oh, so I don't expect adulation. Particularly right. for us in New York with our political opinions. Like, I'm not yeah. saying that, like, we've got the most hateable political opinions in New York, but if we had a large listenership yeah. in the city, we would be hearing... From them. Yeah. From true. them. It's a, it's politics as opposed to anything else, any other subject. Yeah. Their feelings about these subjects are are intense. Uh, and I, as much as I enjoy having, like, uh, like, very cordial and respectful and logical debates with people of other opinions, which I do all the time with friends all along the political spectrum, right? Uh, I like... I like those particular people representing the debate, you know? Like, I like them. Sure. I don't necessarily like whoever else they're repping for, right? Sure, okay. I think that's often true about me. I think they like me. They don't necessarily want to, like, you know, talk to other people on the left or, like, you know, I get that. these things. I get that. So, you know, I would, I, would, I would like more Jackson Heights listeners, you know? like That's, I would, I would, that's one thing, yeah, for yeah, sure. I, would like I mean, I, I think there are advantages... Uh, to having our listenership grow, I'm not sure if they're super worth it, <laughs> as you guys point out. I mean, I don't, I don't hate the idea of being listened to by more people. Although I do think, in getting that kind of internet exposure, uh, you know, as Miracle Jones says, there is the risk of hate mail, and I think for women, the tone of the hate mail. Yeah, can it's, be... it's, I get that. Okay, so here's the, yeah, so there's, there's the question. Like, okay, so let's okay. stipulate that we do want more listeners, right? Like, right, okay. Like, okay so then fine. what would we do to get more listeners? Like, what are, what are things, steps we could take or changes we could make to get more listeners? Is there, are there any, is there any... Yeah, I mean, it would be, it would involve some sort of promotions and marketing and, like, promoting ourselves either on Facebook or Twitter or all of that, the nonsense that you do. Make sure you have a credit. Uh, presence on Reddit and Facebook, and you continually engage listeners. Blah blah blah. How much so, are you just looking for permission to go back on Twitter? I, I am back on Twitter. <laughs> I am back on Twitter. I don't, I don't need anyone's permission. Um, I don't know. I'm not. So all of that sounds really dreadful to me. But I think 
it's interesting. I also maybe this is just collectively patting our backs. I also think it's a good podcast. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Be, that's yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 I think it's a good podcast. It's also a true. voice yeah. I don't hear. Well, I like to imagine that the 50 listeners that we have are, like, the most plugged in, like, connected, like, super, like, powerful listeners in America. <laughs> like, you know, you don't want, you don't want your, your elite society to grow too large. I like to be a secret. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think 50 is probably a little high for us. Or yeah. 35. <laughs> I think it's also, I, the things that I think we could improve, just being kind of like, oh, you know, every time I listen to another podcast, they're like, oh, for new listeners, this is what we're about, as opposed to, hey, this is just what's going on in my life. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's something we could do. We could, pro- we could be a little bit more welcoming. Right. It's an idea. Yeah, I'm not like necessarily yeah, yeah. wet to I'm it. I'm into it. I'm yeah. into it. Well, listen, like, so I, I think about things as a as a fiction writer, right? You're always kind of it's like Bushido. You're always kind of like thinking of yourself as already dead, and so for me, like the uh, the the virtue of the podcast is like as a historical document, not just for for myself, but for you know this time and place, this neighborhood. Right. I also think of that as one of the risks of the yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, but that's just good about it. Like, of course, like as it's a risk. But to me, like, all, just doing this at all is like such a huge risk mm-hmm. as far as the kind of art that I'm used to doing, which uh-huh. is very like manufacturing. You're editing the shit out of it. Yeah, right. You're thinking about how it's gonna like play out over time. Mm-hmm. To me, I think I think the virtue of the podcast is not necessarily in its mm-hmm. breadth maybe or it's reach or but in its in, in the quality of its analysis from moment to moment and the attempt to wrangle with things from a unique point of view that yeah. it's hard for you to make that trade-off and getting more listeners if we sacrifice anything i don't i've never really reconciled that because i mean really if we wanted to be like okay we would put out we would try to record in a regular f- fashion like and we'd have like a deadline yeah, yeah. and then we would also try to up maybe our editing or maybe have multiple mics all that mm-hmm. stuff so there are a few things that we could do also like kind of the clear intros and sort of outlaying mm-hmm. uh maybe yeah talk a little less about our personal lives <laughs> oh, uh, i do actually have a question for the personal life sure sure today. yeah it's not exactly a personal life question I, we'll I, start these reforms so, next week so I, don't know, yeah, so I don't know if you guys have um if you guys have sort of uh watched or heard of the netflix show russian doll i have so in premise it's kind of um kind of a groundhog day type scenario right the day resets um, and it resets specifically, at least as far as into the show as I've watched, when she dies, right? Yeah. No. So um, my question is, well, so first of all, uh, how I got to this question, um, I was talking uh, to a friend, and he asked me, okay, what do you do in that scenario? And I was like, well, once I've become convinced that this is really happening to me, what I do is I circulate the party where she resets to every time, and I ask people what it would take for them to believe that a supernatural event was occurring. Not like try to communicate to them that it's occurring. Just ask them what it would take for them to believe it. So I have that after the next death to like start doing experiments with because I feel like it's important to have someone you can talk to about these things while they're going on. So what would it take for you guys to, to believe that like something supernatural like a Russian doll scenario was happening? Like if I walked up to you now yeah. and I was like, said whatever whatever it is in this hypothetical I'm going to say and it made you believe it what would it be that I had said you can't demonstrate that it's happening. no no you can't watch me die and come back right yeah. you've lost all memory of this okay and, right. so what you would you have to know yeah what would I have to know or be able to say or that I, I, yeah, I don't know I think I'm I'm 
So my thought was that I'd be suggestible if you could somehow provide me evidence of someone who had come back to life, uh-huh. right? Or uh-huh. like someone I'd known who I was close to d- uh-huh. died. Like you could have evidence of that. Like uh-huh. I mean, I, I feel like the movie Groundhog Day touches on this a little bit when right. he like predicts the next thing that's going to happen. Right. Yeah. 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 So that kind of perfect predictability be, would be great. But I also think that like just I. I kind you would of assume it was a setup, though. Right? I wouldn't assume a setup. I'm like a little, like, I, you know, I think of myself as skeptical and mm-hmm. scientifically based in my reasoning, but I know that I would have been 100% behind the late 19th century spiritualist movement. <laughs> I, would have given, I would have given all my oh, money to that. It's I am not that too kind late. of sucker. <laughs> we can do a seance. Yeah, I would have done it. I, I'm, oh, yeah, I would have been just one like of Just like knocks the, under the table and you're like, like whoa, well, who is that? Wait, what do I want to talk Yeah, I would have totally oh. wanted to I would have. I would have been that just because I'm so sentimental about death that oh. it would have it would have it would have plucked that heart straight. Yeah, I think I think for me it's more about what you're asking from me mm. as a result of this. Because you're like, just like I'll entertain this idea. Yeah, if yeah. if I f- can quickly ascertain that you believe it, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, and you're not asking me to kill somebody or commit a crime uh-huh, or like uh-huh. really go out of my way in any way, uh-huh, uh-huh. then certainly I'll you know hear you out and mm-hmm. like you know go with you to the bank or you know do whatever crazy plan you need done that all right, day all right, all right. Uh, with a just to see what happens I was gonna say, I'm, I'm relieved to hear that because you're one of the people I would probably consult yeah if this kind of thing happened I feel like you got to have your team ready sure so. I mean and I've done I've been around so many people on ver- various hallucinations yeah, yeah. there's not a hell of a lot of difference yeah one of the things that I said that I think people like uh, who I was talking to about to it about were not expecting is you know because people are like what would you do in this scenario I'm like well first I go to the hospital and get an MRI because if you have a brain injury and you lose time you might confabulate content yeah totally and yeah. so what you don't want to do is like confabulate a story where you died a bunch of times and yeah. assume this next time is going to be fine yeah. So. But. Yeah. No. I. I'd, I'd. I'd tell people. I'd say like I just did like ten hits of acid. <laughs> I need you to like come with me. Like, <laughs> so because, you. So like, you would pretend to be on drugs. Yeah, because like you're gonna be saying crazy shit. Okay. You're gonna be like doing crazy shit. You need them not to freak out about okay, it. Okay. Uh, right, you need right. them to like kind of babysit That's you in bad. a way, That's but not also bad. not like. Yeah, you need you need people to like be reassuring, but also yeah. not like stop you from living your life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, all right. That's creative. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's probably the way I would sell that. Yeah. Um, all right. Interesting. Interesting. What would what would convince you? What would convince me? Yeah. Um, well, I think to some extent. I'm on board with you in that like if someone shows up and tells me that that's happening like my first concern is not objectively what's happening here it's like triage because if someone is saying this to me they're having a rough day right like like, regardless of whether or not something supernatural is occurring they're having a real rough day and I want to show some compassion toward that and then like I think you're right. It would be like, what are you looking for from me? Do you want to like game out ideas? Do you yeah. need help brainstorming? Do you totally. just need somebody else to know and act like they believe you? Yeah. I mean, I think like where I would start to have trouble is where someone was proposing um, a plan in this particular iteration of their own reset scenario yeah, that involved them dying. Sure. Right? Like, I'd be like, I didn't mean to see if you can live this one as long as you can. Yeah, and their yeah, like, yeah. incentives are way different than yours. Yeah, yeah. Cause it's, you know, considering their timeline will end and yours will keep going. So, yeah, you yeah. know, you don't want to end up in prison for something that for them was temporary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in their own mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hence the, the problem of every psychotic person. It's... <laughs> 
All right, those were good answers. Thank you, guys. Um, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I feel like that explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> Each day is much like the next. Um, are you familiar with uh, Nietzsche's idea of the eternal recurrence? I am not. Do you know Nietzsche's eternal I recurrence? I think so, yeah. It's, it's so this is kind of whatever I encounter, like Groundhog Day or uh, Russian Doll or mm -hmm. uh, Happy Death Day or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that you should live your life as if the moment that you die, it begins again, mm -hmm. and you have to live it over again with no changes. I see. So I it's see. kind of like it's yeah. kind of like the opposite of Groundhog Day, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we don't get to make any changes, yeah. but you will have to go through it over again with the same thing happening. Interesting. Knowing the same people making the same choices, uh -huh. etc. Uh -huh. Okay. So okay. it's a kind of hell, but it's also a kind of like you know potentially maybe, not. Maybe there's stuff you really idea. like. Yeah, yeah you I've should do that as much as possible. I've kind of avoided reading Nietzsche because I feel like when people like when people who have like substantive levels of personality overlap with me read Nietzsche they sometimes seem to become douchier yeah sure. he has the worst fans yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and should not be the one philosopher that you read right 100% yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah like the Beastie Boys his fans killed it <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. for everyone yeah but uh, I like that concept. Uh, it's uh, but, but you should read Nietzsche. Nietzsche's quite good. Yeah, all right, he's, a all great, right. he's a great writer. I, mean, I think you should kind of read that span, right? Like, oh, I mean, yeah, it, totally. Like, from the 19th, like 19th absolutely. century, they're really, really good writers. Good writers yeah, and they still with, feel relevant. Yeah, start with but, Kant. Yeah. Know, and and read, read Kant and Hume. Yeah. yeah. And then go to, you know, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. I think they still feel relevant in a way that I don't know if I think that late 20th century philosophers are irrelevant post Foucault that was that's my whole thing like I actually think post Foucault philosophy is just not super interesting yeah I think we're in a golden age of history and yeah. I think that's a kind of philosophical proposition yeah that's that. right. uh, but yeah yeah I, I would agree with you that philosophy seems less uh, imminent or important uh, right now yeah, I had like seven rants I wanted to okay, go well, let's, But I think I wanted to first talk about MMT, which, okay, which yeah. is, uh, what, modern man monetary theory? Yeah, yeah, so let's give some context. So, modern, sure. so we've got a couple of candidates right now yeah. whose entire, you know, uh, domestic policy hinges on some insights that they've gleaned from this economic theory called modern, modern monetary theory. Right. Uh, for instance, Warren, Sanders, right. AOC, uh, less uh, some of the other candidates. Right, and I think, yeah, especially sort of the the either the the new Democrats or the old socialists. Yeah. Um, I think in particular there's a woman out of Stony Brook who's a professor who's really, I think she's backing the Warren campaign. She's sort of the, the unofficial economic advisor of the Warren campaign. And she's a big proponent and has been for many years of modern monetary theory. Right. And I think one, just to step back, economics is not a science, right? It's a conjecture based on data. Um, a lot of times, a lot there's a lot of theory chasing very little data. So there's no real certainty in the field. They're very kind of, there's some concepts and some theories, but a lot of it is sort of um, argue, history argued through formula, right? And so that's, it's it's important. And like I, I like having a historical debate, um, but you know it doesn't get any more grounded just because it goes gets passed through this filter of a regression. So uh, so that's kind of my take on economics in general. Particularly if you get to run as many as you want. <laughs> yeah, in exactly. Order to right, right. The, the result. Theory, yeah, right? yeah, the result that you want. Absolutely. Yeah. So that being said, I think that there are you know if you come across an economic theory that 
uh, you should sort of give it some weight and, and try to think about it. But in, in terms of being able to prove something is right or wrong, it's we're not there yet. I don't think I don't think we really understand the complexities of economic uh, environment in general. So it's very hard to kind of come up with someone who has the theory that's absolutely right. So yeah. that being said, what is modern monetary uh, theory? Yep, yeah. uh, modern monetary theory is the idea that instead of targeting uh, deficits as a way of thinking about fiscal policy, thinking about uh, and typical deficit is is when the government spends more than it takes in from taxes. So you're running you're running a debt uh, year to year, and that that becomes a debt. So a deficit is sort of your yearly um, shortfall if you're not taking enough taxes to pay for your expenditures. And the idea behind MMT is that you don't really have to worry about your debt or deficit level. What you really have to worry about is inflation. And as long as inflation is stable, you can continue to ramp up your debts. And that, to me, is so bad. It's such a bad theory that I, I, I you know, there are people thinking about this seriously and, and look at it seriously, but I just find it such a bad idea. And it's gained, I can't tell if it's gained a lot of traction on the left or whether or not it's actually just, it's just gained traction and then there's this whole flood of people just kind of saying like, no, it's really not a very good theory at all. But if you do hear about MMT... It seems like a theory that right now is expedient yeah, that's, for it to have traction. Right? Yeah. And Although that being said, can we take a step back and maybe, I don't know if it's possible, but just in a sentence or two, if you can walk me through why the prediction of MMT is that um, as long as inflation is stable, you do not have to worry about deficits. Well, I think or that it, the two aren't connected. Right. I think the idea is that they can look at particular moments in history where it says, okay, well, we did run up deficits and inflation and, you know, there was no collapse. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that the idea is that you know, at some point you get behind and you can no longer cover your debts uh -huh. and then you, that becomes unstable for you okay. and, your, and, your, and your debt burden and that may or may not be troubling to your currency, all of the things Wouldn't that... Wouldn't this seem like cart before horse problem because doesn't inflation tend to run up because you're printing money to pay down your debt at right. the national level right like isn't that so yeah i think i think they put forth, there's a link right i think the the idea is that the government can pay for anything because they print money but that's fundamentally not true right so if you're the government's paying money or printing money in order to pay its debts or finance new things it means there's a lot more money awash in the economy and that just tends to chase inflation up mm -hmm. right uh, the other thing is that there are a lot of other factors that go into inflation, right? And so the idea is that, like, let's say we have a gas price hike, right? There's some new Middle East issue, something happens, and oil goes to $150 a barrel. There will certainly be inflation, and it'll be widespread, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can now all of a sudden just stop spending, and the government will, and that'll take care of inflation, right? That's that's the implication of modern monetary theory. If inflation is high, you just stop spending. The government uh, pulls back and, and, and takes in more taxes than it spends, and that'll take care of inflation. And that's fundamentally just not true. Like, and so I think this is, uh, there's some problem with the mechanics of how they think about it. Um, and I think that in the end, what it is, and I think you were getting to this, Alexis, is that what this is, is this is a theory justifying a political outcome they want, mm -hmm. right? And I think, and if you want to take a short view of history, right? So the Republicans said, "Hey, you know what? We don't. We want to ignore deficit spending um, for whatever reason. So what we're going to do is we're going to engage in this thought experiment that says, how can cutting taxes be good for the deficit in the long run?" And of course, they came up with this idea. 
okay, maybe this is not exactly the chain of, of events, but they came up with this theory that said that if we cut taxes far enough, the the economy will grow and it grows so fast, fast that right? The taxes that, we're taking in, right? Exactly, and this is, there's something very much on the mirror on the left, right? Like you, if you if you spend enough, right, then all of a sudden the re, the return on income, like I think our own congresswoman says this, right, you, you have to worry about how much prosperity you'll have based on the Green New Deal, right, and so you don't have to worry about the fact that you are continuing to borrow money in order to finance these projects. And so you have an idea that, look, why, why don't we just throw away the idea that deficits matter at all? As long as inflation doesn't rise, then we don't have to worry about it. And because we've basically existed in 40 years of low inflation, no one remembers what that was like. And so they're like, oh, now we'll just assume that inflation is is going to be stable because it has been for the past 20 years or yeah, 30 years. Bias yeah, in, yeah. And also we have something called the Fed whose job it is to cut inflation, right? So as soon as, and all you have to do is make sure that the Fed continues to do what it does, which is hike interest rates when inflation goes high, you, all of a sudden you have a blank check, right? If you follow monetary theory, modern monetary theory with the Fed, you never have to stop spending. And it's, it's bad, it's dangerous, but I think, again, these are economic philosophies that are finding masters for who want that political outcome, right? They want to continue to spend. There, there's definitely... I would say it, it seems to be on both the right and the left. There is motivated reasoning motivated around right. fiscal policy. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, so, um, so is there a better general theory for how a government should conduct itself uh, that you can think of? Ooh. Oh, is there a better general? I mean, I think without knowing more about the economy, which we are fairly ignorant about, I yeah. don't think it's a bad guideline to think about hey, look, we have deficits. We could maybe increase the debt and the deficit a little bit more, but that does put pressure on our ability to pay back loans. Also, it does effectively how would we spend, because if we we're going to spend more money on paying up, uh, paying bonds then or interest rates on bonds, then that does take away money that we can possibly spend. We're also effectively borrowing. Yeah. Now to that and passing the debt on to future generations. So all of those things, I think those are enough in the way of like this is how we frame debt yeah. and debt spending that is pretty decent common sense that we haven't <clears throat> just because the we took the congress in 2018 doesn't mean that all of a sudden basic rules of being able to balance a government debt that, that balance sheet said, is hard that being said i don't even think of that that as specifically a democratic problem right because what's the What's the worst long-term problem we have in terms of deficits and debt spending? Well, it's the existing trajectory of Social Security right. and Medicare, right? Yeah. No changes, no additional big government spending on the table. They grow at a projected unsustainable rate over the next, what, like 20 years or so? I can't remember what the right. timeline is, but it's not long, right? Right. Um, so that's why you pitch med something like Medicare for all is like necessary because it's the only way to rein in the spending that will yeah, happen well, as a but result then you, of the, But then you yeah. also have to make the argument that Medicare for all isn't going to actually increase spending, right? Yeah, so, 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 right. so It's yeah. an unproven. Totally. So yeah. it's completely... But it is one way to... Yeah, that being said, I mean, purely based on levels of medical spending country by country in first world nations, like... America is the outlier for expensive medical care. Right? We're, we're the dot that's way up there, not... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, yeah, so Especially relative to our outcomes, 100%. Yeah. There, there is probably a load of inefficiency in the medical spending 
sector, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of medical spending. I mean, even the idea of structuring an entire industry around insurance for events that are guaranteed to happen is slightly absurd. If you were to imagine it in any other scenario, right, it would be like if instead of um, your car insurance covering, say, accidents, they covered the cost of gas. Well, right? yeah. Like, so, I mean, so we've got three, three theories here, you know, that are all kind of unsatisfied. You've got the, the, the traditional Republican theory, which is, you know, uh, the libertarian one. You, you run your, your country like a business and you should, you know, cut everything and in order to pay for what you've got, you know, taxes should cover expenses if they don't cut expenses, right? Also not how actual modern businesses run. No, but, you know, <laughs> that's, that's how it's sold, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, so then, and then you've got the new kind of right-wing theory where, you know, it doesn't really matter. You, you know, cut taxes, that'll increase revenue mm. for a country, and that will, that will therefore take care of, mm -hmm. of so you don't have to, and you don't the have to get spending. the worst case scenario is that you're forced to cut entitlements yeah, because of necessity. Absolutely, and that's, that's great, but you know, I do. You won't have to wink, wink. Yeah. So because it's, it's all going to be fine. Prosperity is going to cover it. Yeah. yeah. So then, and then you've got modern monetary theory, which yeah. is uh, this this new kind of untested theory, uh, sort of un unprovable until something collapses one way or the other yeah. uh, on it. But then the collapse would be catastrophic, yeah. right? So that, maybe it would be that great. That being said, that being said, I mean, what we have seen other countries do recently is austerity, sure. right, in terms of handling debt, and that also doesn't seem to produce great outcomes. Well, Zimbabwe printed its own money, too, and it had a billion dollar, billion oh, percent, yeah, 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 yeah. like a million percent inflation. So, I mean, we've seen what printing presses, a government who owns its own printing presses and exploits that. Yeah. Also, but we're not dealing with, like, you know, a lab here. We're also dealing with a country that has the you know, reserve currency for the world, right? So it's not, not necessarily, there's not a lot of good, nothing to compare it to mm -hmm. as far as, like, experiments. In terms of in our, I mean, you could... You could compare it to the British pound back in the day. Yeah, yeah once upon a time. Yeah, yeah. But even then, like that was, there were, there, the instruments weren't around. Yeah, but guys, what about when Bitcoin becomes the global reserve? Yeah, currency? totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's, also, there's also that snake in the grass. Right, right, right. Going back to my original point, it's really easy to put words together. Yeah. It's really, it's impossible to prove what the actual outcome will be. Yeah, of it, it turns out that future prediction is actually... It's hard. really hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Totally. But we can look... But if you're trying to put that package together, we can look at things that have borne fruit in the past, you know? Sure, like, absolutely. But I think... We've, we can look at things that haven't, right? Like, right, absolutely. I, I, and I think one of the problems is that, I mean, a lot of what the left tends to want I mean, the overall return, you can argue in terms of social and moral good, yeah. but the actual economic uh, payback for, say, infrastructure projects may not be that high, Sure. Or, and the return may not be I that high. I mean, although that being said, the economic return for some of the left's pet projects that don't get general support is extraordinarily high, like early childhood education. Yeah, right? for but sure. Then, but then, but then the again, right. yeah, and, and those outcomes are, yeah, and you have to measure them by different outcomes, right? Like, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then again, I mean, you're, you know, we spent a lot of shit and a shadow bank in you know the Pentagon and we got the internet right it was developed like in secret in order to protect like Darpen. nuclear Darpen, weapons yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah so I mean this was like a you know a, a money expenditure that nobody greenlit but <laughs> it's led to the backbone of the modern economy so are you saying that we should just not look at the military budget no I'm just I'm just, so I'm only, just only good things happen if we don't examine the military budget yeah, what, I'm if just, we, what if what we I'm, have <laughs> defense spending <laughs> what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is it's 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 
very complicated. And any <laughs> and you sh- if somebody's yeah. asking you to kill somebody else for an economic theory, like don't do it. Like, <laughs> there's no you know that's that's the history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is do we so think much racism un- and economic theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's so much uncertainty about like economic projections that no one should in any way go to battle over it. Yeah. Although I, for one, am slightly excited for the next round of major monetary policy theory because they are going to have to call it postmodern monetary <laughs> theory. <laughs> postmodern monetary policy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Did you um, yeah, so, so I guess this kind of segues into the announcement of the candidacy of one Bernard Sanders, oh, okay, junior right. senator of Vermont. I did, not, I, I did try to avoid this topic. Go ahead. <laughs> So what do you think? So Bernie Sanders has entered the race for president. He's raised $10 million in a week. He's That's about to amazing. have a town hall at CNN. Uh, he's, you know, polling uh, higher than slash even to Biden in some states. Uh, the polling is bad, but and there's, you know, a shitload of candidates. Uh, but he's, you know, uh, uh, he's got name recognition. Uh, he and that's what matters in general. These early polls. Yeah. So, so what do you think of his candidacy? Where do you think? Where do you think he's? Where do you think he's? He's going to go from here? Uh, well, so um, personally, I think if you want a candidate with Bernie's policy positions, you ought to vote Liz Warren since she gets things done. They have the same job title. And their legislative records are quite different. Um, I personally feel that Bernie Sanders is an all-talk politician. Um, uh, an opinion that does not make me popular in my age group. That's <laughs> 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 true. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'll take him over Trump, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Kamalash. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've never felt the burn. So <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, a, so I... I I don't know. For some reason, he doesn't excite me. One, yeah. it's a combination of his policies, which I think are not poor, are not well thought out. Um, you know, I don't yeah. always love uh, the idea that spend it and the money will come uh, philosophy. I think it's proven pretty unreliable. Um, I'm not a 100... I, in general, I have no problem with social policies going to the left. I think it's yeah. a good idea and followed by higher taxes. I have a problem with how you're framing it because I think there's no way you don't get to deepen the tax burden of your average American, right? Like you can't just sick it to uh, billionaires and corporations. Like you actually have to dig deep into other people's pockets and they have to be willing to engage in this general process of widening and deepening the social shit safety net. Like I think that's that's what I don't love about the socialists. There are definitely different generational philosophies around social welfare, I think. Sure. Um, as much as I know that you're not a fan of generational theory. I'm not. Um, that's but I, I respect that as a millennium, you must bring it into every <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so, among other things, right, like, you see this reflected in the fact that um, voters in my generation tend to be more liberal, right? And there is a relationship between that and their attitude towards social welfare, which I would additionally suggest there is a relationship between that and having come of age and entered the job market during the Great Recession, right? Like... I, again, even if you're not into generational theory, like those are all just facts of things that happened to people in a certain age group. And I do think that, you know, the number of people who have relied on a GoFundMe or know someone who have relied on a GoFundMe or gone some substantial portion of their adult life without health care 
or or yeah. lived uh, or like a whole generation who like had to wait like two or three years or five years before their career started yeah, yeah. living at home who, like that's yeah. amazing yeah, like, who, yeah. Pushed ba- who pushed back getting their own places who pushed back okay. getting married who pushed back getting, getting kids, kids yeah right like that probably adjusted generational attitudes toward the function of community the function of community itself right when you are forced to rely on your family and friends more um you become more appreciative of the value of community networks and safety nets yeah i just want to push back that i think that's a generational thing right because i think that's because i mean well i didn't have to go through the great recession but i also think that one of the things that's happening is that uh, certainly within my own peer group, uh, either they've gotten more vocal about being left or they've been driven to the left uh, over the past, even the past five years, right? So really, and so I think that's, uh, I think the two things have coincided as more millennials are being, are becoming more active in politics and maybe they bring a leftward swing. I actually have, I think that more people are actually swinging to the left on on the at least people who have had that predisposition. Even my parents' generation, who are very old, I, I think they've either become more left or they've begun to become more vocal about being left. I mean, in my experience, right, of my parents' generation, which is also more the younger end of your parents' generation, maybe I guess. yeah. Um, certainly, those who are already left have become more vocally left, but I do not think there has been the same drift in terms of additional perceived value add in specifically this sort of community orientation. Yeah, yeah, but I would say baby boomers are way to the left of millenniums when they started out. So they're they're they they you know this they went backwards during their entire trajectory as human beings. Uh, to True, they, to where they to where they categorically yeah to where they ended up at a very mm-hmm. skeptical center right. But they center right. Yeah, I mean, they're not. Center. We're talking about baby boomers right. as a generation, not right. necessarily the alt-right or the ones in power now, right? Mm-hmm. Just like as a, you know, they, they gave us Barack Obama and, you know, they gave us George W. Bush, and but they also, you know, they started out with Carter and McGovern, mm-hmm. you know, and they saw how that didn't work, and so then they ended up, you no, know. I mean, I think there's a natural tendency to get a little bit more conservative as you so age. I don't, but I, actually, I, I don't actually think that the numbers support that. Because uh, I've been I've been reading about that and people were saying it a lot for a while and then I saw a whole series of refutation articles. Well, right. I mean, I, I so think no, I think I think Andrew Gellin did did pretty good work on this. Like, so you're gener- like there's a generational cohort, right? And so mm-hmm. you start left, but you have a tendency to to so, drift right. So from what from what I read on this, what actually is happening there is that um, liberals die younger. That's, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Dark, but uh, but evidently, which makes sense if you consider sort of what the liberal coalition is. Um, I mean, I do think that the history of baby boomers is a history of being a, a, alive and aware of extremely far left candidates that failed, and then seeing. Uh, a, a different kinds of coal and living under yeah you know, so I'm, I'm less talking candidates than positions you know once you've seen them run and lose mm-hmm. then you start to reconsider the the what they're selling right I, like millenniums have never seen uh somebody with a far left you know position lose an election they've seen 
they've seen Obama win. in a primary though, right? In a primary, but they didn't. And know, they're all very upset about it. And they but they, but, the, but the entire, <laughs> the entire, the entire theory is that he would have won, right? Mm. Like this, this primary was illegitimate because Bernie Sanders was the only candidate that would have beaten. You know, mm. he would have won, and so he had to be crushed by the corporate Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. Having seen somebody, you know lose after running changes your political calculus. I think, so I I still want to voice, like I think that what happens is that there's a fault line between left and right yeah. and those divisions have, have have split, right? And they've gotten further and the left has gotten further, has gotten to the further left. It's just that millenn uh, people who are younger tend to be more democratic so they just happen to be on one side of the fault line and they tend to move left because I think if you, if you go to certain um, certain, like if we break it down by issues, like even things like uh, you can say that okay, uh, people care a little bit about our community, but I, you know, one way to think about it is anyone who had to uh, look for a job post two thousand eight is very, very skeptical about the promises of capitalism. Sure. But I think that anyone who had to live through two thousand eight is is much more skeptical. Like I, and I think that that goes with my generation, older generation, baby boomers, and even my parents' generation, who I think are not baby boomers. My parents are not baby boomers. They're older really? than baby boomers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, but you know, they're they're another demographic group born in India. You could talk about something like Medicare for all, and I think people who are on the left are you know they're much more receptive to the idea of Medicare for all in the past four years than they were, and I, and that's and I think. Uh, but it's uh, also like you know the price of health insurance has for sure skyrocketed during that time. So it's not like these things are happening in a vacuum. Right. I mean, that, that would be my argument. That's why it's happening across the generations. It's just that millennial uh, millennials tend to be as a Have group. Have a larger pool of liberals. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that's, I mean, I, 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 that's what I generally think. I could be convinced of generational theory, but and I won't say that different defining experiences have a way of crystallizing like a certain w viewpoints, but I also think that they don't necessarily create sort of a one single outlook, right? People react to the same Definitely. events in different ways. Sure, sure. Different, I, I'm, different I, I'm also not, I'm not looking to claim that everyone has the same right. outlook. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I I'm just saying more. I think that there's a slight change, difference of emphasis. Right. Sure. Different, different events inside yeah. a generation cause different kinds of people who are always going to be present inside those generations to get more power. It's not so much just that the generations have their own character, right? Mm -hmm. Which, okay, that's probably, it's so probably true that it's stupid to talk about, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's not what, gen generational theory actually says there's like five different kinds of generations and they repeat in cycles okay. so there's like the, no, the it's, so, it's so hindu yeah it's very hindu, right? <laughs> so there's like the visionaries uh -huh. then uh -huh. there's the the, all right, all right. the practical ideal and they, they it just moves in these like ineluctable cycles i mean like i only believe in science and magic <laughs> <laughs> but like generation theory is like it's a little bit neither right mm -hmm. it's like attempting to like put this like scientific patina and like magic like go a full astrology if you're going to go full astrology don't yeah. tell me some some bullshit in order to back it up like i'm in the house of millennial <laughs> yeah, it's on the rise man it's on the rise, so. the rise. it is on the rise well i support yeah. it you know it's fine good vote <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but, uh, but back to Bernie Sanders, like, uh, no, no, I just want to I think he's going to win the primary. He might oh, yeah? win the primary. Yeah, because, I, you know, I've only ever seen four different factions fight online. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump people, uh, Sanders people, Clinton people, she's not running, and then Beto people. 
and I nobody I've never I haven't seen anybody else fight for a candidate online at all. Yeah, I, so, I agree. So unless people start picking a candidate and fighting online for them, Sanders is just gonna win by default because people are afraid to even say anything against him. So. I mean I think if Biden went in or if maybe Beto went in. Yeah. Beto Beto could Beto could could cultivate some partisans, but you know, unless unless somebody else starts getting out there and yeah. most people start getting out there and, and I, uh, yeah. well, braving yeah. the debates because people because the other candidates attract I'm, attract the type of supporters who want to be above debates online and stuff like that and you just can't be like yeah, that's yeah. how you gotta get in there moves. you gotta be shock trip yeah shock troops, right? you, without without being able, and if sanders is able to cultivate all the shock troops and clinton's shock troops are diffuse mm-hmm. you know between 15 other candidates then sanders wins pulling a trump pulling a trump maybe i mean it's it's possible i mean yeah. you know, with that kind of playing field you have to have the you have to have the presence that the camera loves right in that right. weird way that like you have the news cycle has to be with you and well this doesn't translate into actual support right know? it but doesn't I mean, translate ten, i mean the biggest argument you, you can make is 10 million dollars right? that's yeah and that's that's a sign i mean that's amazing yeah uh, uh, so you know but that's depressing. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's not depressing. It's just, you know, so it's 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 a sign of where we are now. It's a sign of the country, right? So, like, I'm just cynically looking at this, like, with the divorce from whether what I feel about Sanders, like, I'm nervous about that. Like, so you've got this online support, which is utterly divorced from the, like, physical support mechanisms of the Democratic Party. I feel like I'm smelling the tone that we get when there's, like, um, bots and trolls injecting certain sentiments into the discourse like I feel like I started to get like a like you can kind of detect the smell of it and I think it's happening right now in the Dem primary and it's probably impacting um, some of the flavor of coverage of candidates yeah definitely that's Um, not not going anywhere yeah I don't I don't think I understand that point could you explain that to me and I I just I don't think I followed it um, I just in so so this is this is very loose because this is just loose (laughs) pattern recognition in terms of sentiment tone and mm-hmm. rhythm of debate happening yeah. online but I suspect and I attempted to like go to some of the sites that you used to be able to use to be like what are Russian trolls talking about now yeah. um, but uh, the one that I used to use is no longer available because they're waiting to release substantial revisions um, I think that in the Dem primary uh, this is happening now okay. and I think that it's making the um, primary discussion tone shift into a slightly more rancorous direction, particularly towards some of the non-Bernie candidates. Um, no. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'll, it's something that we'll only know in retrospect, if at all, but I do think it's happening right now. Okay. Interesting. All right. The only way that this could have been prevented is him choosing not to run at all, but he did not make that choice. So, in, by injecting himself into the into the well, I'm seeing it more in terms of like coverage of like Harris. Or yeah, or, yeah, know. but that would have all been neutral. It would have been canceled out. Yeah, you know, in the event of him not running. But now there's a focal point where, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so I mean, I wish him the best of fucking luck. Mm-hmm. And you think he can't win? I don't. Th- I think he's almost the only one that can't because I, I think he's the only one that can't get that support from people who knocking on doors they're like running the the, the how do you feel party. about the um bernie fans argument that he'd get cross the aisle support 
So, hearing that one so if Bernie fans are pushing that Bernie Sanders is the most right-wing candidate running in the Democratic <laughs> primary, I agree with that. I don't think that's going to help him in the national election with a Republican president. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if Bernie Sanders is going to be to the right of Trump on immigration, I don't think he's going to win the election, you know. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would have been true mm-hmm. in, a, mm-hmm. in 2016, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not going to be true if Trump's mm-hmm. already president. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm not disagreeing. I was just curious what you had to say. To yeah, it. I mean, I, I so you know, I, I think he's going to win the primary and lose the general, unless somebody develops partisans in the way that Beto did, which was unique. Yeah, but I just don't see it happening. I don't see any candidate courting that online following mm-hmm. in an effective way. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to really understand how it works. The mm-hmm. landscape works. Mm-hmm. That's a huge problem. Like mm-hmm. that's the that's the election space now. Mm-hmm. It's not the real election space, but the virtual election space mm-hmm. translates over into, you know, conversation. Primary. Yeah, primary the machinery of it. Mm-hmm. Which is stupid and I hate it. <laughs> I mean <laughs> I wish I wish I, I wish well, the I, I would like the virtual election space to map onto the Actual, actual election one space, yeah. In a way or vice versa? Well, in a way that is, you, you, you disagree. No, 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 I just don't think it happened. Sorry, that was me shaking my head. But yeah. I, I, I think that's the one thing about virtual online space, right? Like, you have to key into a community, and all of a sudden, a third of your people are like, oh, there's black Twitter, there's black women Twitter, there is... LGBT no, black sure. Twitter, and there's, like, but, but, uh, there's Indian Twitter, I'm right? Like, not online. I'm just but, saying, but, but it's also there. There are fewer barriers to like getting access to that, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's easy to find that out and just be like, okay, it's actually much easier to follow certain communities like online. What that's not necessarily representative of that community, but people who belong to those communities do have an online presence, right? And it's easy to get in because like you don't have to be in a certain geography in a certain space, have gone to a certain school, right? For sure, yes. But the, once upon a time, those if you wanted access to this community in order to get this vote, you had to go there. Right? Yeah, you know, I'll, you, I'll agree with that. Yeah, you had to go to Alabama. You had to go to Mississippi, right? Yep. And that actually generated sticky support or like something approximating like an understanding of what those communities are like, right? Okay. Uh, and that is no longer true. So they're a constituency that can be ignored in favor of running up the score with places that are easy to get to. You know, I think I think that's colleges, a fair, right? I think that's a fair argument. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting argument. Let me think about it. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, I, I just I just think that the divorcing of the base of the Democratic Party from its vocal top is horrible for the Democratic Party because the right doesn't have that problem. Like its vocal top is its base. <laughs> yeah, right now it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. But. Yeah. Right, was there anything else you you said you had six I had, rants. Like, I had like so many other rants. Yeah, yeah. Rants what do you, you want to rant about? Okay, one. I okay. Actually, so since we brought up Bernie, one. Okay. Uh, this is the thing that I'm really annoyed by uh, on the right is that they keep talking about turning American socialist. America is a socialist country. Right. It is 100 percent a socialist. Or country. at least if the things that they're proposing would turn America socialist, would turn America we're, socialist. Yeah. It's already socialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're already socialist. We're democratic socialist. We're democratic socialist. <laughs> <laughs> All countries exist somewhere, well, a lot of countries, most of countries exist on a spectrum between capitalism and uh, socialism. Hong Kong is probably about yeah. as, and America's solidly in between. I think our yeah. government, I looked this up, that government spends about 42% of our GDP. Do you know how much Canada spends? Roughly 42%. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like a huge difference, right? I mean, this is such an annoying thing that they're hopefully conflating, like, socialism with Venezuela. That's yeah. not what socialism is. Socialism is... 
is Denmark or even Canada or the U.S., right? Like, I mean, and I think this is one of the things where, like, you know, the Economist or whatever, commentary magazines would be like, oh, millennials are not worried about the word socialist and this is a bad thing. I'm like, no, they just woke up to the idea that, like, socialism is an economic spectrum on between capitalism and socialism and the U.S. is... Yeah, they want the to tweak the dial. Yeah, they like, And this has much as much to do with communist countries becoming capitalist countries. Yeah, right, absolutely. And, and yeah. there are capitalist autocracies, yeah, right? Totally. Um, and I think basically either between the passage of income tax uh, in the um, Taft administration or the New Deal, we become a socialist country. This is what we do. We take, we tax the top and like, you know, 90% of our taxes, federal taxes come from like 10% or smaller. And, and that time every country became a socialist country, country right right absolutely there was no country on planet earth that did it to varying degrees right yeah. Was, yeah and my whole take is like my whole take is like we tax from the top to give to the upper middle class yeah that's that's why america's inequality problem is yeah. bad like our biggest tax cuts go not our biggest but our biggest one goes to healthcare, right like yeah. it's 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 not to paying for health care it's to subsidizing employers like the tax credit employers get for offering their employees health care. Yeah. That is an upper middle class cut, like just like the mortgage tax deduction, right? Like yeah. we take, we tax the rich in order to give to the middle class. The we upper incentivize middle class. indentured servitude. It's just, <laughs> this, is, this is where inequality, like if you want to talk about inequality, we have to address those. So America is a socialist country. That's, that's one. We have been for, for 80 years. Yeah. My number two rant. Number two, right? Okay, so number two. This is this is something that's bothered me, and I want to talk about it for a long time. Okay. This is um, this also reminds me of Bernie Bros. But so uh, the progressive left in New York has uh, has rallied behind trying to curtail Uber, and and in particular, I see a lot of people who are really into like biking and uh, really about like public transportation, saying that we need to curtail Uber. It's cutting down like public spaces people aren't using public transportation um and it's causing all this and for some reason they're on the side of being sympathetic because it's causing all this traffic in midtown but i find this i think think you're missing the the labor activists protecting protecting taxi drivers but yes yes yeah for sure absolutely and i i I get that element but i just want to say that from my personal experience i will acknowledge that uber has all sorts of externalities it causes traffic issues but those services transformed how people could access far-flung communities that tend to be poorer and tend to be far more diverse than Midtown and the really nice, well, well-heeled uh, boroughs of either Manhattan or the, the ones that are close, the really nice mm-hmm. parts of Brooklyn um, that have easy access to the subway. Because what happened was though the neighborhoods that became that had good access to subways and public transportation are hard to afford and they tend to be rich they tend to be white Mm -hmm. and the minorities and the working class go to further flung boroughs Mm -hmm. and it was a godsend it was a godsend when uber Mm -hmm. came and like i know this because it was i have lived largely in communities of color since uh, for the past 20 years either washington heights or crown heights or bedsty or now jackson heights and it was impossible for me to get a, a a taxi certainly in those areas and it was hard to get a livery cab so you could actually and now you can actually travel within those boroughs and now you can actually get reasonable reliable transportation and i find it and i know and actually and i and with the pool services you're even looking at something reasonably close to public transport yeah absolutely and i i find that no one is bringing this up on like sort of 
the, 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 the transportation activist sites of like Twitter or wherever online because I, I don't understand why this is not brought up more because anyone who is of color knows this experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could not hail a cab in the early 2000s. I had to ask white people to do this for me mm-hmm. because my fellow South Asians would pass me up for white people. This has happened to me. And this just doesn't happen with an Uber. And you can, and I know that they're not perfect, but like the idea that, that there is a progressive way to think about Uber and it's bad, I think it's so weirdly blind to class and race mm-hmm. dynamics mm-hmm. that they're supposed to be so behind mm-hmm. that I, I find it so perplexing. It just and it's really, really a frustrating thing. They should thing. really take that activism and move it to fighting Airbnb. I think. <laughs> oh, you don't? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think I actually don't have a problem with Airbnb, but certainly I have a problem uh, with Airbnb in New York City. I should clarify. I mean, I think that's a nuance debate because I haven't thought about it one way. But I would say that Uber yeah. really changed. I mean, you yeah, no, no. I mean, that makes everything you've just said makes perfect yeah, sense. I don't and know. I'm on board. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why this doesn't get more pushback just from regular people. Whoever runs Uber is probably still an asshole. I know what's his name was were probably pretty terrible. But in terms but of the value of the services, the value yeah. of the service is really it was really good. It was mm-hmm. really helpful, at least, mm-hmm. uh, even in New York City. Let alone other places. Let alone other transportation issues. Definitely makes yeah. sense. That's that's my my rant. Do you have any other rants? Uh, no, for, I'm good. I'm good. All right. Well, uh, does anybody have any recommendations? Uh, so recommendations in general, I think. Uh, uh, left, right, and center. Great podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah very good. Uh, hosted by Josh Barrow normally, uh, and I forget who subs in, but yeah, they're very, very good. Uh, it's a very good podcast for sure. I wanted to recommend a pair of novels. Uh, they're very timely uh, for this guy. Only wrote two books, Robert Creighton. He wrote one book oh. called uh, The Secret of Santa Vittoria, and then he wrote another book called The Camerons. Uh, yeah, so he was a, a World War II vet, fought, got a, a Medal of Honor and a Purple Heart in the Battle of the Bulge, uh, and then he wrote, uh, he came back and probably is one of my favorite novelists, like, uh, but his first book was The Secret of Santa Vittoria, was about, it's about this uh, uh, mountain town in Italy, uh, after uh, Italy has bowed out of World War II, Nazis are occupying Italy, uh, and so the Nazis are trying to requisition the town's wine supply, and so they're hiding the wine supply, and they elect this like uh, Sicilian Machiavelli enthusiast <laughs> to like town mayor. And so the entire book is just this cat and mouse between like this Nazi commander who believes in like nonviolent, you know, he's like a pacifist Nazi versus this like Sicilian. <laughs> it's really weird and specific, but they they both like have these. You know, he believes that like Nazis command through like you know moral authority, moral authority, and okay, uh, okay. Sicilian just is like very expedient, and is just about like you know we'll use whatever this guy thinks against him in order to get what we need done and protect our wine. But uh, it's a great book; it's stupendous. And uh, his next book is called The Camerons, uh, and it's about uh, coal miners. So it's it's also very topical. Uh, it's just it's about kind of coal miners in Scotland. Uh, uh, there's a, a labor uprising, uh, and this one family has to kind of decide whether it wants to, uh, who's been who's the hardest working coal miners in town, whether they want to go bourgeois or like join this labor uprising. Uh, uh, and it's very, it's the incentives are very interesting, and it's 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 a complex book, uh, and it's uh, uh, very well written, beautifully written, I would say. Uh, so if you're going to read two novels this year, I'd recommend those two. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. That's it? All right. All right.
Well, uh, thank you everyone for listening to episode 60 of Room of Requirement. And thanks to Kevin Carter thanks for Kevin producing Carter. our intro and outro music. <laughs>